Well, how many are, of you this morning are ready for Jesus to come back? Say amen if you would. I'm ready for him to come back. We're talking about signs of his return today. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to Luke chapter 21 this morning. Luke chapter 21. As you turn to Luke chapter 21, also turn to Matthew 24. Two texts that we'll be looking at over these next few moments in some degree of detail uh, before we get to some amazing admonitions that Jesus gives us as believers living in any age, but especially perhaps the last days. Let me ask you to think about next week with me for just a moment. Uh, next week on Sunday morning, we launch a new series uh, for four weeks called Love One. It's going to be a very important week uh, and also an important month. It's going to impact our community through your witness, your testimony. So let me just say just that and encourage you to be here next Sunday morning. The next Sunday night at 5 p.m., a town hall meeting where we talk about the future, and I really encourage you to be there as we have some time together as a church family in the chapel at 5 p.m. next Sunday evening. All right, if you have your Bibles, let's stand together as we read Luke chapter 21, signs of his return. This message is going to be a rush in the middle, in the, in the first part of it. The first 10 minutes, I'm going to rush through very quickly. Now, now, normally we don't like to rush through messages except to save time, of course, but the reality is I want to get to the backside of this message. I want to get to the admonitions of this message, which are for all people at all times. And so to do that, I need to give you some of the timelines and some of the signs of the return of Christ. And we'll take some time to belabor that teaching aspect in these first 10 minutes or so. And then I want to drill down into what Jesus said we are to do as a result of that. Luke chapter 21, standing in front of the temple, Jesus is giving an amazing object lesson to a group of people who have just watched this little widow put her mite or her coin into the offering box. And uh, as that has taken place, all of them are beginning to talk about the adornment or the beauty of this massive temple of God there in Jerusalem. And it says this in verse 5, and while some were talking about the temple that was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts, he said, as for these things which you're looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one stone left upon another which will not be torn down. An unthinkable thing for them. This huge building with the massive stones that some question, how did this temple even get built? He's now saying there will be a day where not one stone is left upon the other. Verse 7, they question him saying, teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name today, as we begin this passage, as we look at this narrative, this story where Jesus is talking to the disciples, I pray that you'll open our eyes and minds and our understanding for the signs of your return. I pray for not only insight and understanding, but urgency in our hearts. As we know, you'll return someday. And that someday may be soon. Father, we ask that you show us what we need to see today. And for every person in this room today, no matter what position we're in when it comes to your return, we're all to be followers of you. And Lord, help us to know how to follow you best in these days. We ask this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. One of the greatest times of study in my life really actually took place in Jerusalem. When we were on a tour of Israel, and the teaching that we heard about uh, from the teacher and the leader of that trip was Matthew chapter 24 and Luke chapter 21. And for hours uh, on the Mount of Olives, for hours in the Garden of Gethsemane, and even on the steps leading out to one of the gates of Jerusalem, 
I had my Bible open. I was taking notes. I took pages and pages of notes as I saw the end times unfold from Matthew 24 and from Luke chapter 21. And there are some things that we need to know about the return of Christ, the signs of his return that I want to talk to you about today. Literally, there are three questions the disciples are asking Jesus. You can't see it all in Luke chapter 21. So that's why I've asked you to also hold open in your Bible Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 3, the same scenario is taking place. Matthew's account is more detailed than Luke's. And there are three questions that are being posed that help us understand the answers that Jesus gives. Here's what it says. It says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? That is, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming? Second question. The third one is, and of the end of the age. It's important for us to see those three questions and not just one. When will the temple be torn down? What will be the sign of your coming or your return? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21, both give us answers if we can understand how they unfold. We're going to look today at some clear signs of his return and then events of the end of the world as we know it. And as we talk about these things very rapidly as we walk through them, let me just say that some of these signs are very ominous. Some of them are very intimidating. That's why the Bible points to the signs of his return as birth pangs before the ultimate birth. Now, I don't know a great deal about birth pangs because I'm a man. And I have to tell you, men, if you minimize the birth pangs, the labor pangs that your wife goes through to have children, you are in trouble and you will only do it one time, I promise you. My wife gave birth to six children. It's been amazing as we've watched each of our children be born. And the first pregnancy that she had, when we went into labor, when she went into labor and I was there to encourage her and there to assist her, I always say, we went into labor. She always corrects me and says, you mean I went into labor. <laughs> it was fearful. It was painful. And we only had a glimpse of what was at the end of that. We'd never held our own child in our hands before. And when she gave birth to that baby, all of a sudden my wife said, everything that I went through was worth it. Pregnancy two, three, four, five, and six. When she talked about going into labor, there was a smile on her face because she knew what the end of that would be. That would be an opportunity for us to hold our child, to be able to say, we've made it through those labor pains, those birth pains, and now we're at that place of finality and fulfillment. And that's how we need to see birth pains when we look at the pain and the heartbreak that the earth will experience before Christ's return. The best is yet to come, in other words. Christ's return will make it all worthwhile. So with that idea, let's walk into some of these signs of his return. And by the way, when we look at signs of the return of Christ, they're not just timelines for us to mark time with. They're not just indicators for us to look for. But they're affirmations of the prophetic voice of Christ himself. Every time I see an indicator of one of those signs, I'm reaffirmed that Christ spoke every word eloquently and accurately, and I can trust everything he says because everything he said so far is coming to pass. So I can trust Christ in every way. If you have any qualms, any hesitation at trusting Christ, when you hear what he says about the end time, then you're going to see, yep, everything he says is coming to pass just like he said it would. 
Very quickly, we'll walk through five of these signs that he gives us. First one is found in verse eight, deceptions of doctrine. Before all these things take place, there will be deceptions of doctrine. There will be many false teachers. Look in verse eight. He says, see to it that you're not misled, for many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. It's very evident that that's happened in the last 2,000 years. Some false leaders will claim to be Christ, but most will simply seduce us away from Christ. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. Very few people actually say, I am Jesus Christ, even though there are some crazy enough, insane enough to say it today. But the reality is most people seduce us away from Christ, away from his teachings, away from what he gave us as the core truths by which we're to live. There will be deceptions of doctrine. The second sign is that there will be disturbances among the nations. Verse nine says, when you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. As you look around the world today, it's unavoidable that we see all these wars, all these skirmishes, terroristic activities, nations rising up against nations. Matthew even emphasizes natural disasters escalating. And that's happening all over our world. Not just that we know about it, but the escalation of natural disasters and wars is happening. It's verifiable. In Romans chapter 8, verse 19, Paul speaks of that. And he says, For the anxious longing of the creation wakes eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The earth itself is waiting for Christ to come back, for it to find fulfillment in its creator. And we'll see more and more of that. Sign number three, distress for disciples. In verses 12 through 19, Jesus warns his disciples and those who are his followers that before all these things they will lay their hands on you, will persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. They will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your minds not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I'll give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute but you will be betrayed, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they'll put some of you to death, and you'll be hated by all on account of my name, it says. Verse 18, yet not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Distress for the disciples. Now, Jesus says before all these things is a reference of water. Before ultimate desolation for the temple, and for the Jewish people, these things are going to be taking place. There's persecution that will unfold. And the New Testament disciples experienced that, just as we are expected to experience that in the latter days. Did you know that not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ died a natural death? Not one of them died an old man in peace and prosperity. They all died as a result of martyrdom, with the exception of Judas, the one who betrayed the Christ, who hung himself. And so there are these deceptions, disturbances, and distresses. We see all those in the text. And then for Jerusalem and for the Jewish people, not the followers of Jesus who are not Jews, but the Jewish people who have not followed Christ, there is what we know as desolation in Jerusalem. Look at verse 10 and 11. Then he said, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be great earthquakes and in various places, plagues and famines, and there will be terror and great signs from heaven, which is part of what will happen during that time of the desolation of abomination. Look down in verse 20. He picks it up there as well. But when you see Jerusalem surrounding by armies, 
Then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, so that all the things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath of this people. Now he's speaking of the great tribulation. It goes on in verse 24, and they will fall by the edge of the sword and they will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. That's a lot for us to, to read through and to think through. But the desolation of abomination is what takes place in Jerusalem and in the temple after the saints of Jesus Christ have been raptured out. So Jesus is answering all these questions and we have to see exactly what he is answering regarding who. This is kind of a double prophecy here. The walls of the temple there that these disciples were standing around when the question was asked were destroyed in A.D. 70. And later on as the temple is rebuilt, after the rapture of the church, then they will be destroyed again, this time by the Antichrist who moves into that temple in what's called the abomination of desolation. Charles Spurgeon called this a kind of rehearsal in A.D. 70, which will take place again at the end of the age. But the vast bulk of Revelation points to this period being after the rapture. Whenever we think about all these things, we have the tendency to ask the question, where's the church during this time? What's going to happen to us? How much of this will we see? I believe from reading the Bible that we'll see deception, and we'll speak to that in a moment. We'll see disturbances among the nations. We'll see that in a moment. We'll see distress among disciples because of persecution, but we will not see the desolation of Jerusalem. And here's why I believe that. Because all the places of the Scripture that talk about when Christ is coming from the church, position that return for the church where he comes and we're caught up together with him in the, in the air before the time of great tribulation, before the seven years of tribulation where the wrath of God is poured out on planet earth. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. I'll show you what I mean. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. Here's a passage that all of us are somewhat familiar with. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. We know that goes on to say, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. We refer to that as the rapture of the church. Christ will come back in the, in the skies, in the clouds, and we'll be caught up with him in the air. And the rest of the population of planet earth will still remain on earth because they've not trusted Christ. He's not coming for them. He's coming for the church and the rest of them who have turned away the testimony of Christ, turned away the gospel of, Je of Jesus Christ, will be left there for that seven years of tribulation. I know that additionally because of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, or verse 9 rather, chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not destined for wrath because God has forgiven us of our sins, by Jesus dying on the cross, but we're also not destined for the pouring out of the wrath of God that'll happen on planet Earth after the church is raptured. Turn over another book, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Tell us other reasons we know that we will be raptured out or taken out before the tribulation. He says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first. 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is what's called the abomination of desolation in the temple. This is when ultimately it'll all be destroyed. If you read on chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 7 and 8, it says, And now we know what restrains him until that restrainer is taken out of the way. And the restrainer, of course, is the powerful restraining influence of the Holy Spirit exercised to the church of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you why the Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet. He hasn't been revealed yet because the church is still alive and operating on planet Earth. And the moment our testimony exits earth, the moment Christ comes for us, there will be a void of revelation and a void of discernment and a void of insight. And it will allow an antichrist to rise up and deceive the whole world. So part of the prophetic timeline involves this desolation that will take place in Jerusalem. And it'll be what's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Not the time of the trouble for the church. But as Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7 says, that day is great, there is none like it, not any at all, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Finally, there is the destruction of the universe. That's the fifth prophetic event that Jesus speaks of. Look at verse 25 through 28. This is when this unfolds. Then there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Not the rapture, but the ultimate return of Christ here. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This is when Christ comes in, destroys the old earth, and creates the new heaven and the new earth. And that, my friend, is the prophetic timeline that Jesus gave us in five key events. Now, I want you to take a breath for just a moment. Bring her in, let her out. How do we live then as a result of all these things? You see, there are those that would spend all their time talking about these signs and say, we really need to be looking for these signs, and that's where our hope is. But in the midst of all these signs and indicators and events, Jesus gives warnings for his disciples to listen to and heed so that we can live the way we're called to live in every era. It wouldn't make much sense for us to make note of times and dates and even say, I believe this is the ultimate month and year Jesus Christ will come back if we're not living for him in the first place. The whole point of his return is to call us to a state of readiness. The whole point is live like he's coming tomorrow because we don't know the day. And we have a responsibility and an obligation and an opportunity to live faithfully before the Lord. So what are the present warnings? How do we remain sane when all these signs are unfolding? It gives you four admonitions I want to look at today. I want you to make note of these today. I want you to pause and let them sink in. This is how you're to live until Christ comes for us. Number one, he says... Don't be deceived. Look at verse 8 with me again. Don't be deceived. He says, See to it that you're not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. You have to think about the disciples during that time. They have 
just uh, entered into the city, Jerusalem, and what we know as the triumphal entry. This is Passion Week, probably Wednesday of Passion Week. And Jesus marches in on the donkey. Remember that? And everyone is proclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The palm branches are being thrown down in front uh, of that animal as Jesus rides him up to the temple gate. Really amazing, the picture that's there. But now the disciples, after the crowd has dispersed, are having this conversation with Jesus and it's sinking into them that he's about to be crucified in a matter of days. It's sinking into them that maybe all that they had hoped for in terms of his immediate military takeover was not going to happen. And so Jesus is getting them ready. Make sure no one else comes along and says, I'm the Christ. Be careful that you don't follow them. Don't be deceived. Don't wander off from everything I've said to you and everything I've exposed and revealed to you as God in the flesh. So those disciples were ripe to be misled. And unfortunately, we're ripe to be misled because of the length of time. It's been hundreds and thousands of years since Jesus spoke these words. And since it's been thousands of years, many have given up hope or many have begun to let their attention wander. For us, this do not be deceived translates to reject false teachers and false teaching completely. When I think about the possibility of deception, I'm stunned by the incredible ease and the incredible gullibility of believers today. It's stunningly easy to lead people astray. If you don't think that's true, look at all the wealthy charlatans who masquerade as teachers of the Word of God or pastors of churches and, or televangelists who are massively wealthy because of the gullibility of people, and they'll say almost anything to gain the following of people. Don't be deceived, Jesus said. If a teacher will promise wealth and health and approval for sin or approval for heresy, almost anything and anyone will follow them. Jesus says, don't be deceived. Jesus gave us a perfect pattern of who God was. He was God made flesh. He gave us the word and he told us to search the scripture. He told us to go to the word, to heed the prophet's words, to heed the words of the power of the Holy Spirit who would remind us of who Jesus was. Let me just say to you today, in order for us to keep from being led astray, we need to mark those who retranslate the word of God into a meaning that is never intended. If someone will retranslate any scripture, they'll retranslate all scripture. Don't be deceived. Mark the word Know the word. Recently, Babylon B put out yet another great article of satire. I don't know how many of you read that. Raise your hand if you've read Babylon B. All right, some of you haven't, some of you have. It's a great uh, satire site, website. You see it on social media. And everything they say basically is tongue in cheek. Everything they say has a spiritual point, but at the same time is crazy and ridiculous. And I had a picture, or at least it painted the picture of a story of a woman, a young woman who was refreshing her phone, hoping that the Bible program she had on her phone would retranslate what the Bible said about sexual identity and about homosexuality. She kept pushing and kept pushing, hoping that the authors of the Bible would come to grips with this modern interpretation and understanding. And it's kind of laughable because that's how culture is today. So gullible, so unaware of 
the completeness of Scripture and the finality of Scripture that we hope somehow someone will come up with a retranslation of what God's Word says about almost any subject. Jesus speaks to this. He says, don't be deceived. He says, know the Word, know it well. Sometimes I think the confusion with truth and secular media is mirrored in the church today because we've allowed the truth to be retranslated, reinterpreted into something that is absolutely not true. We don't need to be confused. People need to know the word. You need to know the word. You need to read the scriptures. You need to understand the insights of the word of God. Don't be deceived. One of the greatest encouragements I have of our church it is how we have rooted ourselves into the Word of God. Every small group you go to will be focused on the Bible, not just what people think about the Bible, but what the Bible says truth is, which is the ultimate question. I love the fact that we teach our children from very early on what God's Word says, that they embrace the Scripture, that those wide, innocent eyes and that, that naive and innocent heart is first inclined towards the Word of God instead of culture itself. I love reading about children that memorize Scripture and the children that learn to translate and understand Scripture in a clear way, understand truth from error, right from wrong. It's so incredibly important that we invest in the next generation because they're going to hear some version of truth. They need to hear it from us so they won't be deceived. Are you with me this morning? The Bible is the truth that keeps us from being deceived. I've got an eight-year-old boy over here doing this and clapping. I don't know why nobody else is doing that. Amen. Don't be deceived. Secondly, don't be afraid. In verse 9, the Scripture says, When you hear of wars and disturbances, don't be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. You know, the amazing thing about these sensational things that happen all around us is that God knows in advance what's going to happen. I can read these signs and not be disturbed in any way. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is teaching about these amazing, incredible, and otherwise horrifying signs of things that will come to let us know he's been into the future and he's telling us what it'll be like. And since God declares the end from the beginning, because God knows the future and because God is in the future, none of these terrifying signs should disturb us at all. So he says to his disciples, don't be terrified. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. You'll hear of all kinds of awful things taking place, but do not be afraid. These are birth pangs. And you know something greater is coming. Something greater will be here. Someone greater will come to take us all and rescue us into heaven with him. Isn't it crazy how fearful the world is today? I mean, we're terrified of everything, humanly speaking. We're afraid of global warming and it terrifies people until we get this incredible freeze in the deep south of Texas and we begin to question that. We're, we're terrified for someone to have some different political view that we have. We're terrified about the sexual identity politics. We're terrified that someone will disagree with our opinion today. How dare they say something that offends my understanding of something? We're so terrified. We're living in a state of hysteria. And I have to tell you this. If I didn't know God was in control, I would be worried as well. But I'm not worried because God is in control and because God declares the end from the beginning. This last week, I read the story of a, of a Kentucky pastor friend of mine who happened to be taking a trip to Honolulu, Hawaii with his wife and his mother. 
And they were one of the many on the islands who got the text. Incoming ballistic missile. Take cover. This is not a test. You remember reading about that? And it was 39 minutes before anyone was given any other word. So for all practical purposes, those who had their phones out, those who got that message thought, all right, I can conceivably see maybe North Korea has decided to punch the button and these missiles are coming over Hawaii. And so as this pastor tells the story, he lets his wife know and she begins to make phone calls to the children back home and text them and say, look, I don't know if this is real or not. I don't know if we'll survive this or not, but we want you to know we'll love you and we'll see you later. We're not afraid. But the mother, this guy's mother, was in another part of the suite. She was putting her makeup on. And when she heard about this text, she said, Mom, this may be real. She goes, Honey, I'm getting my makeup on and I'm not going to do anything else. If Jesus is coming by, I'm going to look good. If I die, I'm going to look good. No fear, not terrified at all. You know, you and I need to have that kind of mindset that no matter what happens in the future, we are not afraid because we've been warned. Jesus is on the throne. He's got everything taken care of. He knows every hair on your head. He knows how to protect you. He knows how to elevate you to a place of incredible testimony. Don't be terrified. Don't be afraid in any way. We're following him and he take care of his own. Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid, then don't be silent. Don't be silent. He says this to these original disciples. Can you think of how incredible and how important that statement is to these original disciples? Don't be silent, verse 13. All these things will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. Peter, James, John, you've walked with me for these three years. You've seen my power. You've seen how God has moved incredible ways. You've seen me calm the waters. You've seen me call the dead back to life. No matter what happens, don't be quiet. This is an opportunity for you to shine, an opportunity for you to tell the story, an opportunity for you to let everyone know. And they're seeking everywhere desperately looking for hope. You have hope. You have a message. You have testimony. Don't be silent. I can't imagine these disciples walking out of this scenario and determining to be quiet and not cause ripples and not make waves. The truth is, these disciples, after they got over the shock of the crucifixion and the resurrection, told everyone, and that's why you have faith in Jesus Christ today. Don't be silent. Culture politics and our own compromised testimony pushes us into a corner wanting us to be quiet. Hatred for Christ will be at an all-time high, but don't be silent. You and I watched an unforgettable image last year as those 18 men in orange jumpsuits were paraded to a beach and beheaded. Some of you know the story that came out of that some of the indicators of what they said and what they did, they were all believers at the end. 17 of those believed in Jesus Christ as they were led to the beach. And the story that I read about this account is that as those 17 men refused to recant the testimony of Christ before they were beheaded, the 18th man, he was not a believer, watched them bravely, boldly face death and the confidence of life in eternity. And he too confessed Christ before he was beheaded. All of them saw it as a testimony to stand firm with Jesus Christ. 
And then I think about how intimidated we are to share the gospel today because we're uncomfortable, because we're not sure if people will reject us or not. And Jesus says this, at some point they'll reject you because you own up to Christ. You might as well not let the opportunity go by the wayside. This is an opportunity for you to share what Christ has done in your life. These days are days that you live at, that you can tell others how to have hope, the same hope that you have. Tell people how Christ changed your life. Let them know that he's the only hope, the only way, the only life. Don't be silent at a time when only the gospel of Jesus Christ needs to be heard. Over the course of this next year, you'll hear, hear us uh, advocate and admonish you and encourage you in many, many ways to find one person that you share the gospel with and pour your life into them, invest in their life, uh, invite them to worship with you, impart the gospel to them. And we're going to encourage you to find that person because if you don't witness to them, who will? These days will be an opportunity. Don't be silent. The gospel itself has an eternal urgency connected with it. And that is when we put our faith and trust in Christ, we are his eternally. And if we don't, we are separated from him eternally. There's an eternal urgency that has to go on in the heart of every true believer. Don't be silent. Finally, number four, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. In verses 16, 17, and 18, some very surprising things will take place, he says. You'll be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Some of you have already experienced being betrayed or being discouraged by loved ones to back off of your walk with Christ. And you'll be hated by all because of my name, Jesus said. Yet not a hair of your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your life. Don't be surprised. I believe the cultural wars that we will experience in the days ahead are going to be very intimidating. I believe that's happening in many countries today and it'll happen in America as well. You'll be hated just because you believe in Christ and the full revelation of the word of God. You'll be hated because of that. Let me remind you of something that's very true for every believer to remember. In every nation where persecution has taken place, the church has not died, but it has thrived. The church has not died, but it has thrived. The church of Jesus Christ, when pressed, when persecuted, comes alive. All of a sudden we say, what do we have to lose? They're going to persecute us anyway. Let's let them know that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and Master and Sovereign God over the universe. In China, in 2015, 20,000 believers were persecuted in some way, many to their death. Churches were torn down. Crosses were ripped off of buildings. But do you think the church in China has diminished? Not at all. It's absolutely exploded because of the persecution. There's something powerful when you begin to threaten a true believer uh, with their life. They begin to say, I've been living for Christ. Now I'm willing to die for him. And we have to not be surprised by what's encountering us in the days ahead. Live for Christ and don't shy away. You see, all these things, these signs are indicators that Christ knew what he was talking about. All these commands are how we live until he returns. Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Don't be surprised. Just stand for him. Determine that you will not compromise one iota. Allow him to infuse you with power, with boldness and encourage 
in these days until he returns. You know, if I'm someone listening to this message, and if I'm not sure that I've given my life to Christ, then I'm going to have kind of a, a mindset of a little concern. And if, I, if I really knew what was going on, I would be fearful. I would be fearful because I ought to be fearful. Concerned because I ought to be concerned. You see, this admonition is for believers not to be fearful. But if we haven't put our faith and trust in Christ, you have everything to be concerned about. You have eternity to be concerned about. You have the forgiveness of your sins that's not been taken care of yet. You have the life and how you'll live it now that's not been established, not been determined. So my ask, my ask of you today is, have you come to the place of placing your faith and trust in Christ alone? If you haven't done that, looking at the signs of the times, looking at the admonitions, shouldn't you make that decision now? Shouldn't you choose to live for him before he comes back? So that you'll have an opportunity to have the same testimony others do. I want you to bow your head for just a moment, close your eyes. Before I dismiss you in prayer today, I want to invite you to a personal response to what Jesus Christ has done for your life. Truth is, Jesus came just a few days after this conversation. He allowed himself to be nailed on a cross. He was lifted up off the earth. He died there. He died as a substitute for the sins of mankind, for my sin, for your sin. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died. But not only that, that he satisfied the character of God. God's justice and God's mercy were both met there at the cross in Christ. And the sufficiency of Christ was enough for God to say, this appeases my wrath, this appeases my anger against sin and rebellion. I will therefore forgive anyone who comes to me in the name of my son Jesus. And so all that's left is that personal response for you to come to the Father in the name of Jesus and ask him to forgive you of sin and ask him to give you the gift of eternal life. Before we leave this room today, I want to urge you to make that decision now. In just a moment, we'll stand and many will leave because it's at the end of the service. It's our dismissive prayer. But it's also an opportunity for you to linger, for you to wait, for you to be here. Because there are those that will be standing at the front ready to pray for you. And I'm going to ask those to come right now if you would. And I'm going to ask the entire congregation to stand at this moment if you would. And as we all stand together, as our prayer team assembles, they're there for you. They're there to answer questions. They're there to pray with you. They're there to help you make the decision to place your faith and trust in Christ. Maybe you're fearful about what to do in some other way. You come, let them pray for you. This is a time of decision. It's a time of great opportunity that the people can put their faith and trust in Christ. We want you to have that, that chance. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much that you give us the signs of your return that you indicate how we are to be ready, how we're to prepare. In no place is there a greater urgency than for us to know that our relationship with you is right. So Father, I pray for each of these in this room, and I know there are some who are not sure about their salvation. They're not convinced that that's been a life-changing experience for them, and I ask that you help them know today, this moment, they can make that decision that'll change their lives forever. Father, thank you for the free offer of eternal life through Jesus. And today, as we leave, help us to be witnesses, to not be silent, to be willing to share with anyone and everyone the great hope we have in Jesus' name. Amen.